Welcome to The Chosen Brew. I'm your host, Ian McNally. In this episode, I went up to Orange in New South Wales to chat with Marty Oliver, who is the owner and operator of Boronor Brewery. Marty was great to interview. Um, I visited his brewery. We sat amongst the stainless steel as I interviewed him and tried a couple of his wonderful beers. He gives a whole different perspective of craft beer in regional Australia, in New South Wales, in the middle of wine country and the challenges that a small brewery faces. So it was fascinating to talk to him. Here he is. Let's get into it. Tell us a bit about yourself, Marty. Where are we, first of all? Ah, Thanks, Ian. Yes, we're sitting in the brew floor at Boronor Brewhouse in Boronor, New South Wales. We're just 10 minutes out from Orange, which is a lovely food and wine region if you haven't been here before. And yes, it's uh, one of a couple of breweries nestled in the the heart of Wineland. Yeah, do you feel on the way here and as you're driving to Orange, all the signs are about wine, wine region this, wine region that. You passed all those brown signs for wineries. Are you in the belly of the beast here? Is this a wise op- option to build a brewery in Wine Heartland? I think it's. I think the the signs are a good sign. It's a sign that people are interested in in quality product, local product. It does set a benchmark because the wine industry here are very cohesive, and they market well together. Um, sometimes we're kind of really trying to get in there amongst it with them and try and join some of these events. Sometimes it's welcome because they want to see the variety and see beer as a viable alternative to wine in some events. And other times, you know, they really want to focus on what they do best. And we're just a distraction, I think, at times. So we're we're finding our way through that. Yeah, I think um, having gone out in Orange last night to one or two venues, you certainly notice... uh, Boronor and the other craft breweries around are really making you know you're getting in the fridge um, and people are drinking it uh, and I think that probably comes from people wanting something different with their wines and their food quality that they want something local is that fair to say of Orange? I think so I think they oh, the locals are definitely wanting to show off the region particularly when they've got friends and family visiting um, being in the the fridge is a good start you know we all really want to be on tap and that's probably the hardest thing even in the country or maybe especially in the country how do you go about selling Boronor to restaurants or to bars that have got you are used to the mainstream are used to selling that to their locals how do you pierce that how should I say uh, monopoly Mm. (laughs) if I use that word carefully I think it's the variety. People want variety these days. We don't just want to drink the same thing for life like our fathers or grandfathers did. Um, yeah, there's definitely place where people say they want to support local. That's when you go, oh, well, I just so happen to have some local beer here. Would you give it a try? Or would you put it, would you stock it? Can we see if we can find a place for it on the menu? Or be as bold to say, how about we... Uh, make some food and beer pairings or some suggestions on the menu and that really makes them double take you know who's talking to me here is this a a winemaker trying to tell me what to do or is this you know a brewer desperate to try and elevate and show how food and beer can go so well together if you give it a chance i was actually at the bar last night a guy in front of me and 
the only thing he said to order his beer was, can I have something local? And the nice answer back from the, the bar staff was, um, we have lots of local beer. And they did. Um, and I think that is you know, a really positive sign. Um, I'm not sure how much that is reflected in all of uh, regional New South Wales um, or, or whether Orange is a special case. I is think that- where you were last night, um, they they have a particular support, a real bent for local product in that they'll source local um, fruit and veg um, know and have good relationships with the local wineries and they do set them apart. So I think you're in a very a very fortunate position last <laughs> night to be where you were. Excellent. Chose well. <laughs> I think you did. Uh, so tell us a bit about how, when you're making beer review, maybe in a, a craft beer heartland, Melbourne, Sydney, you're obviously, the breweries there often are trying to you know, put the best new thing out or are really bold and aggressive with whatever they're doing because they want to stand out. Mm-hmm. How does it change for you where you're just trying to get people to try a jump over from a mainstream beer, a 4X Gold, to one of your beers? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I grew up in Sydney um, and I've had a number of years in Melbourne and I've s- seen and tasted, you know, a good variety of beer and cuisines. To come to the country and go to, you know, let's say a a Chinese restaurant, for example, and to see what's on the menu and how it actually tastes, people do have a much simpler expectation. So certainly to put craft beer on the menu, you really, there's an education component. You you need to show people how beer can taste and smell. Um, And it's, it's really rewarding when they're eyes light up and meet yours just on smelling the beer and going, what's that? It's, it's hard in that they're used to mainstream and I'm trying not to do mainstream. I'm trying to take people further than mainstream. But, you know, you mentioned sort of the trendy beers. Um, I'll say novelty beers and, <laughs> you know, don't want to name names. But, you know, when they come around and do beer festivals and there's there's a schooner of something that's got, you know, dark malts and seafood or shellfish in it. You go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely tasting that, but I don't know that I'd go a second schooner of it. That drinkability, that's something that I'm especially aware of in the country because I might be able to get them to have a tasting cup, but they're not going to go home with a stubby unless they just go, wow, this is the beer that I wished I'd always known about. So the idea for um, a brewery of your size is to get people walking away with that six-pack or a slab, and that's uh, pretty... If you the beers are too bold, then that's not going to happen. Is that right? Well, yeah. yes, like a, um, that percentage that, that actually like those incredible out there avant-garde beers that's one percent or Mm. maybe less than one percent of the population i think in country area i think it's a much higher proportion in the city um but to do a just a really good pale ale out here i still think you know it's only 10 percent of the people that want a really good pale ale Mm. the rest are happy with stuff that tastes and smells a lot less than what we can do and I really want to do the best I can do with the ingredients I can get out here. Well, that's a pretty good intro. We covered <laughs> a lot of ground there, so I'm, I'm really pleased about that. Um, we should get to your first choice. 
Your ah. first beer, obviously, Chosen Brew is where you talk through the six beers that changed everything for you. Um, we're going to start your journey. Yes, I guess it would have to be. I was of legal drinking age, but still a teenager. Um, it would have to be the Cooper's Red, you know, the sparkling ale. I think it, I would have asked the host of the party, what's, what's this beer you've shoved in my hand? And they'll go, it's a Cooper's. And I'd have a look and think, yeah, but there's sludge in the bottom. <laughs> and he goes, oh, that's part of it. And I go, what do you mean? And he would say, oh, it's, part, it's, f- it's finished fermenting in the bottle. And to me, the, you know, my science brain just went, whoa, that's amazing. How does that happen? You know, what happens? You put more sugar in and like he said, oh, yeah, it can, bottles can explode. And then the danger factor, <laughs> you know, for me twigged to go, oh, okay. So I think I tasted that beer and it was probably different to, you know, the old silver bullet, the Reshers that I'd probably seen at family parties. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, to actually rouse that yeast and have it cloudy and taste the difference between just just clear or with a bit of a bit more bite. That Cooper's yeast really does have a little bit of a bite to it if you get it really going. Um, I just love that. That that blew me away and got me interested in home brewing, although I never did much with it yeah. at that time, yeah. I think that's probably true for a lot of people is the Cooper's was a real um, uh, may, uh, don't want to use the term gateway, but it's it's something uh, is of a mainstream Australian beer. It's something different than what you'd experience. And when you see, um, I remember I first arrived in Australia, and I, I was ready to go back home. I was fairly devastated about the different <laughs> choice of beer, and then I saw this uh, barman rolling the uh-huh. Coopers along the to aggravate the the yeast, and I was thinking, <laughs> oh, I'll ha- I'll try one of those, and it, yeah, it's great. So Coopers. Still independence, yeah. yeah. Still family company. Family company. Um, what do you think about their choices of beers? And because um, they're definitely in that, they're not necessarily pushing those avant-garde beers, or they're very much. Do you think you can take some heart from them? Or I think I can. I th- I think they're running a very good ship, and from what I've read about innovation and energy retention and you know, gas co-generation of electricity. They've got some great green cred and some good science and, you know, I think the family's doing really well. Um, Flavour-wise, you know you can rely on it and it's got a lot more flavour than the other big guys, but even kind of lumping them in with the big guys, I don't want to do that out of respect because they're doing their own thing. They always have done their own thing. And, yeah, they're not really following fads, um, but definitely a gateway into bigger flavor bigger aroma and traditional practices which i think the craft brewers are all mindful of it's not just the latest science innovation it's about how has it been done and how should it been how should it be done mm. choice number two ah. what's the second bottle in the six pack well i worked in hong kong for a number of years and I guess that's where my food journey really started with amazing Chinese food like I've never had anywhere else um, and also Indian food. So a great little little restaurant in the middle of this huge complex in uh, Kowloon called Chunking Mansions, a little deli club, India restaurant, hot Indian food, incredible flavours, made everything made from scratch in those little kitchens and the tandoor oven in the back. It's just a conver- uh, converted unit um, house turned into a restaurant up these dodgy fire stairs. <laughs> but, yeah, flavour, aroma, 
amazing. And the beer that came out with that was the um, Qingtao, the northern Chinese beer. So learning a little bit about it, I've, I've found that it's got a good proportion of rice malt syrup in it. And that seems to give a real sweetness, whereas other pilsners or light light sort of lagers have a bit of a, a bite or a catch that seems to aggravate curry and the hot spices. The Qingtao really seems to mellow it out. So to as a palate cleanser, this Qingtao worked brilliantly with the Hong Kong food because it's in all the Hong Kong restaurants um, and the Indian food, but... You know, my Chinese mates had knocked me for, you know, getting the Ching Tao because they'd go, that's the old man's beer. That's what, you know, that's what their parents would would drink. But it's been going since 1904 or whatever it was. Um, and, yeah, I'd, I'd, it was an eye-opener to, to find food and beer matching like people talk about food and wine. So I'm, I'm all, all about the matching and looking for those opportunities to make the food better and also to enjoy the beer more. So if that was the old man's beer, what what were your friends drinking? Heineken. <laughs> they were just suckers for the marketing. Yeah, Carlsberg's and Heineken sponsored pretty much everything. I mean, Hong Kong TV, every second ad's a Rolex ad. That and the Martell. You wow. Know, it, it's all about brand and, and, and uh, perception. So a, a Chinese beer that's not really marketed just didn't rate. So I, I I really like the Qingtao for the flavour, but if we were out and someone was doing a round of drinks, it would in, inevitably you know, be the Carlsberg or the Heineken coming across the table. Yeah, sometimes you got to pour up with those things <laughs> when you go go well, on holiday, you know. Yeah, it's not bad. Or you live in yeah, the place. Yeah. Let's go. Choice number three. Number three. Back in Australia, someone handed me a Little Creatures, the original Little Creatures Pale Ale, and... I mean, unlike the the Qingtao or or the Coopers, the little creatures just this aroma, this you know kind of green floral grassy whatever it was. Um, I read recently it's Cascade. I I don't know what what I was smelling back then because I really wasn't brewing, but just to just to have an aromatic component that makes you sit up and go, wow, what what am I about to taste? That was a real eye-opener. So to then taste something that was different to what the nose had, that was starting to mess with the mind a bit and, and it would be a beer that you'd notice. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And once again, with those kind of flavours and aromas, you start to get a bit hungry. Were these beers that people were putting in your hand or were these beers that you were seeking out? Were, were you always one to seek out a new thing or a different thing or was this this chance? Or I am a bit of a flavour junkie mm. uh, um, and fragrances. I love fragrances. Um, but in this case, it was just going to someone who was into their wines and their foods and their beers, kind of as as we do as blokes like to show off our latest discovery like like <laughs> like we invented it it's like here's my new beer look what i'm on to and you know this guy had the the rogers and the little creatures but the that little creatures really stood out to me for something it, it that aroma builds expectation and a bit of excitement and ready to launch into it now marty you let it slip a little bit before when you're talking about coopers you've got an engineering background is that right? Uh, yeah, electronics and computing and uh, a fairly logical brain. 
So tell us about how that influences or, or helps you, you work in a, in a brewery. Does it help me? <laughs> <laughs> I tend to overanalyze and pick things apart. Um, I mean, I'm also a musician as well and tend to, you know, pull things apart and it takes a little bit to then jump back a level and not analyze, you know, the rhythm section of the band and what's the drummer <laughs> doing, what's the bass player on. It's, it's more, and in a beer, it's like, well, not what hop is this, but I try and step back and go, the balance or the progression it's like the aroma and the flavor and the mouthfeel and the aftertaste and mm. try and just enjoy it so i think sometimes the detail gets in the way of the enjoyment um and yeah yeah i, I, I live in two places wanting to know how they did it the engineering part wants to pick it apart so i can replicate it and the other is to find you know the 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 good things or the flaws and go well how can i use that as a springboard to my next beer then do you do you find that you because of your technical knowledge do you end does that end up being thing get things get quite complicated and then you have to strip them back or are you quite a, a, a simple i don't want to say you're a simple guy <laughs> but you you know you have the you know are you aware of the process that, to not overcomplicate it or do you find yourself going down sort of a rabbit's warren of complication I, yeah. equipment and i could get stuck i mean if if we had multi-million dollar backers as you can see we don't <laughs> um, <laughs> i would possibly have that tendency to try and pick up the latest hop torpedo or iso hop extract and some of these other things but we're a very manual hands-on brewery i mean i'm opening valves and doing basic ph tests and setting my water profiles and it's just hops yeast malt water you know it's it's very simple stuff that we're trying to do but it's the balance of those ingredients the choice of ingredients and the balance that really creates unlimited possibilities people think oh how do you make your beer so different it's just like you know a percent here or there of different hops or different malts and you're making a different beer to then have a couple of different degrees of temperature on that beer it's different yet again so if you want to drill down I mean, I can talk all day, <laughs> but I, we try and keep it simple and, and simple means repeatable. If I'm changing too many variables, I, I just get lost at the versions that, that could be there. Um, and really, most people, I don't think, can pick the difference. It's, it's the rare beer geek that says to me, hey, Marty, this beer is different to the last batch. I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> but you're the only one who's ever said something. And and really, it's like a change of a specialty malt from one supplier to another. It's the same, it's the same proportion, but it's just a change of, you know, from one Munich to another. And it's like some people can tell and notice because, well, he loves my pale ale. <laughs> so that's all he drinks. So he can compare version on version and remember. But, I mean, he's, he's one in a million. Yeah. Um, the rest of the people just go, yep, yep, I like that. I'll t I'll take a six pack, please. So how important? Well, how important or how difficult is it to um, to be consistent in a in a small scale brewery? Pretty hard, I think. I mean, environmental conditions. I mean, orange from four degrees to forty degrees, um, and trying to get the mash tun for the right strike temperature, and trying to calculate what's going in and and trying to make them I, I try to make them as similar as i can and really it's probably just not being in a climate controlled facility i mean we've got temperature control on the fermenters but even then you know first first uh 
pale ale batch. I had a solenoid jam open and chilled the beer a bit too too far down and then I had to let it warm up and wait for that to take off again. It's like, well, that beer is never to be repeated just because, you know, th- these kind of processes, if they do go wrong, you know, you, you don't necessarily know when it happened or whatever. But, yeah, I think simple means repeatable unless you've got some really clever electronics involved because mm, orange is uh over 800 meters above sea level i believe and it's uh like last night uh, yesterday it was 24 degrees and then it went down to two overnight yeah that proves a big challenge for any facility trying to operate well um, yeah boil temperatures boil temperatures 99.7 i think here so i mean that that's something that that affects the rate of of you know the alpha acids and the hops you know, coming out. So I I might need to boil for, you know, a few minutes more if I want to try and meet a recipe requirement or an IBU measurement. But I think we're at the point of wanting to start to measure and do some quality control testing post-bottling. And I'd really like to know, you know, where we're at as far as some of these numbers because it's, it's all by taste and sensory analysis. It's not by lab analysis of product. But, yeah, I think we're at the point of me wanting to know my processes, what does it give me, and if I want to say it's 30 IBUs on the pale ale, then we have the science to back it up, and then I can start shooting for consistency at that level. Mm. Okay, choice four. Choice number four. It would have to be the Chimay Red, you know, uh, those cheeky Belgian monks they managed to hide <laughs> all that alcohol behind you know an incredible molten spice balance and once again it's at, at another friend's party someone's going oh try these Belgian beers and I think I had I had the full bottle in sort of you know 15 minutes and decided <laughs> I needed to get up for some weird reason and um, then really felt the effects of that 8% it's like whoa I didn't expect that and it there, I mean, the monks, the Trappists have been doing it for hundreds of years and the balance of the recipes, you know, a little bit of the candy sugar or, you know, a simple sugar just to keep it on the dry, clean finish, yet with spiciness and then a maltiness and then the, the warmth and the thickness of the alcohol all in this amazing mix. It's I think it's very clever. I think that's, it sort of gives the craft beer sector hope is that those beers that quality endures, that they are still around after many different incarnations, but they're such good quality that they're still there. You have you have a, an Abbey Ale. What, what what percentage are we talking with the Abbey Ale? Well, that the, the Abbey Ale was um, inspired by the Shimei Gould or Gold, mm. which is the Patters beer or the Monks beer, and I had one. We've got a fantastic bottle shop up at Lura, Lura Cellars. They do a great job importing all the beers into the region and they are a craft beer mecca. If I want to get something special, I'll talk to Robert and he'll go, Marty, I know what you need to try next. And he's helping me on the journey of being becoming a better brewer, giving me the exposure to this stuff. So I took the Chimay Gold over to a mate's place. We had a simple one-pot meal um, and... I didn't quite get it at first. Mm. Here's this beer that's 4.8% golden, says Chimay on the label, not big alcohol, not big flavour, not big uh, aroma or hoppiness. 
and I'm attracted to shiny things, <laughs> um, things that pop out, a flavour or an aroma that I can latch on and, and pigeonhole it and going, that's that beer, like it's got that hop or it's got that malt. This Chimay, I couldn't quite pick. And my mate said, oh, what, what, what do you think of it? I'm going, I don't know. It's, and the word that came to me was balanced. It was really balanced. Um, and it didn't impact on the food. It's not, you don't have to be careful with what food you serve when you've got such a simple, well-balanced beer on the menu. Um, and I think a light went off for me at that point well sorry went on for me at that point and i realized that there's something special about balance and it doesn't have to be you know sticks out like dog balls you know, <laughs> one yeah. particular thing that that you latch on to so I, I think i learned a valuable lesson there um and coming into oh tap tap issues and and the big breweries telling venues that they need to sell more of this or less of this i had a publican say look we need to have another beer marty i go why my pale ale's going great he goes yeah yeah we need to sell the other pale ale more so can you brew something different (laughs) and and (laughs) i went yeah i suppose so i i went up up into beersmith and you know whacked in a a a belgian ales kind of thing added a little bit more toast and roast character to it at at 4.5 percent and um abbey ale was born so it's a Belgian yeast to try and get some of that spice. Um, it's a little bit of caramel and, and dark just to get a bit of interest. And so I'm not cloning the Chimay Gould. Mm. But it's got the fruitiness and the maltiness. Um, and, yeah, it's it's definitely inspired by that beer. So when the publican said we need to sell more of this other pale ale, the mm. other pale ale is a mainstream. Well, is you know, the craft arm of... Uh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the it's, okay. it's the big breweries craft arm product yeah. that that they were un, they were feeling under pressure to to sell more of because they had a literage deal and they needed to sell more of that pale ale, so they were asking me to give them a not a pale ale. So I'm a little bit cheeky. I gave them a Belgian pale ale and called it Abbey. (laughs) (laughs) And it's been a great winter beer and it's carried through this summer and it's in bottles and it it does, yeah, it's complementary to my other beers. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said just for a balanced ale and I think um, if you look at the successful beers that have happened, probably Stone and Wood Pacific Ale stands out as one of those beers that's Mm. become very, and it's not, uh, smash you in the face of anything and i think that's the point isn't it? it's mm. um it's just a nice balanced beer yeah and therefore er- anyone can drink it i think we sometimes get caught up in the craft beer world of of having to push all the time yeah and i think it's it, certainly for a brewer in your um locale and situation you need to do something that it is approachable that everybody can enjoy mm. um so well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned the stone of wood because that is number five. Oh, ec- excellent. The Pacific Ale. Yeah. You know, it's once again leading in with a special aroma and certainly the early stone and wood, you know, I think the galaxy crop back a couple of years ago was a real standout. You just, I just smelt passion fruit, you know. Mm. Some people smell, smell tinned lychee and other kind of tropical aromas that, I mean, it's like like a Queensland holiday, surrounded by tropical fruit and nice warm weather, and the Pacific Ale I just loved. So for me, that was uh, 
another eye opener as far as going down a a fruity dry hop um, but sessionable and drinkable beer that you would be more careful with the foods that you had but it's, it was a beer that stood on its own it didn't have to be with me, uh, with a meal um, it was big enough to be on its own um, I, yeah it was it was a I guess a pivotal point me understanding that pale ales could be big yet not overly bitter and it's something that was different to a, an American pale ale so the whole Pacific ale and you know all that naming kind of thing it's uh I'd, I'd never call my my pale ale a Pacific ale but it's definitely inspired with that you know Pacific hop new world hop mm. on you know, a solid pale ale base because uh, I, I think for me as well uh, the Stone and Wood Pacific ale is that becoming sort of really part of the mainstream yeah is also very helpful for brewers like yourself in terms of the appearance of the stone and wood is is has got a haze to it and it's not necessarily what the mainstream drinker is used to but it tastes good mm. and there's nothing wrong with it it's fine to drink but it is a bit hazy and a bit yeah. cloudy so yep. it just helps with that education of, of a beer like that breaking through into a mainstream because you can go into many places now and that's the the one on tap um yeah but just one that you can have with a meal but perfectly drinkable uh, as a session ale as well i think so talking of trying to get into the mainstream of things what what's been new at um boronor what's what, what's your project that you're working on now or are you looking at the in the year or so i'm still trying to tweak a mid-strength and people would go, why would you bother with a mid-strength? And it's like, well, we are in the country. There mm. are no buses and there's no taxis. So you pretty much got to enjoy your time out and jump in the ute and get home safely. Mm. So the people who are the designated drivers so far are condemned <laughs> to light beers and, and very light-flavoured mid-strengths. Um, so I would really love to get something that that works around here that is your beer around here for for parties and and events whether they're on people's farms or or out that they can have a couple and still drive safely so very more more aware more so aware here than in the city where public transport's an option you know you've just got to do it well yeah, I think uh, there's actually a bit of a trend happening with uh, Bad Shepherd Tiny IPA. You've got the Bridge Road, uh, Little Bling. Mm. Um, I think uh, Dainton have just brought out a, a small um, pale ale as well, all around that 3.5% mark. Um, and they taste great. And it's it's something that is definitely been missing out the Australian markets. I think we jumped very quickly into those high percentage beers. And coming from Britain, where you go into a pub and it, any of the real ales over 4% were quite unusual. You could choose between 3 and 4%, probably you know, 75% of the beers would be around that percentage because mainly because British people drink for a long time, not for a good time. <laughs> and uh, I think that was the, uh, you know, when when I moved out to Australia, the lack of a low percentage beer meant, you know, you, you might just choose one or two high percentage beers rather than drinking over a, a course of a night. So, yeah, and as you say, in the country, it's a consideration that I think has been a little bit uh, overlooked. Or a plug for the Rogers, you know. Oh, yeah, they've, they've, Rogers, they've yeah. not marketed 
deliberately, I imagine, as a mid-strength, but as far as something that's got some flavour and you can have a couple of, I think that's a very clever beer. That is actually, the Rogers is very reminiscent of a British-style bitter or or a mild, yeah. Yeah. yeah, mild is actually a drink that is so, so unfashionable now in, in Britain. It has been unfashionable for, for a long time, but perfectly drinkable, nice and, and roasty. And oh, yeah. Partigal-style brewing, you know, you've got your multiple multiple outputs at your different strengths. I think that's great to be able to tap into that, those kind of different flavour intensities. Yeah. So definitely. everything from a barley wine to a table beer and, and yeah, the American beers seem to go big. The session, you know, session beers are, I think, even growing in popularity in the States. Mm. And I think we're just a little bit behind that and recognising that you can go big, but it's actually a bit harder to, you know, keep it keep it down. Now, Marty, I don't know. Hopefully, mild isn't your sixth choice. And no. I haven't guessed it again. <laughs> no. But <laughs> we're in the right, con- the right <laughs> continent. Yeah. No, it would have to be the Schofferhofer. You know, oh, yeah. the, the granddaddy of German wheat beers, much like the the excitement of rousing the yeast on the coopers to to see a Schofferhofer sit there with a little bit of haze in the bottle and then go, do I dare? And then <laughs> get that good half centimetre of yeast going in the bottle till it looks like banana move, pour it into a glass and just taste that, you know, that spice and that banana f- flavor and get some of that aroma and the silky sweetness and smoothness that is a good german yeast beer that's such a benchmark so are there any ones that just missed out of the six i like the american pale ales for the intensity of what they are and you know to taste an ipa but that level intensity you know i'd i'd Maybe when I'm older, <laughs> maybe maybe when my taste buds need that extra boost. Um, I mean, I, I I've done an IPA here, and I I wouldn't really drink it for the first six weeks. And it was other people were going, yeah, this is uh, this is good. And I'm going, oh, I just don't know. I think your taste buds have to be painted on or something. <laughs> and and the richness, there's there's flavour in the IPAs, but they're hidden behind such big flavour that out of balance and things stick out when 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 it all comes together there's a richness that that is in that fills the mouth and then i think you can break down some of the flavors but oh i <laughs> it just flummoxes me that style it's just it's it's massive i maybe i'm just too sensitive to some of the flavors and and maybe that's why i can identify you know smaller differences in beers because these big beers just just smash me with with their size so uh yeah i, I guess the, i guess all the ipas kind of miss out because they're they're just a bit too far for where i'm at yeah it's also a bit hard just to choose one isn't it to <laughs> well sierra and the, yeah it would have to probably be a sierra, sierra nevada yeah. whether it's one of the seasonal southern hemisphere or mm. a hop torpedo or something you know something that just shows off the hops that's probably where i where i was um and i'm really chasing the malts now you know i like some of the malty beers the german beers seem to be the dark you know the dunkles and stuff they're quite malty but they're dry and i think i'm more of a sweet tooth i'm always after those sweeter malts than the dry malts the mm. sweeter stouts rather than the dry stouts 
So I guess overall, you know, I'm more attracted to, to multi-sweet beers with a hot balance. So Marty, you also get to choose an ultimate beer snack to go with your six beers and also a, re- a ideal receptacle that you're going to drink all <laughs> these six beers out of. What's, oh, your, what's your beer snack that you have to have with you? Oh, I mean, a, a spicy jerky would be something that just keeps the taste buds going and self-cleansing, you know, palate cleansing by saliva. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's if it was to be spice, if I can indulge, I guess, pork, pork, pork crackling, a salty, a good salty pork crackling would be something else just to, to keep the taste buds going in a different way and just and getting the, the sweetness of the beer against that salty background of, you know, the crackling or the nuts or whatever you've got. It's still contrast. You contrast the beer with the food and both things can be more pleasurable. Yeah, excellent. And the receptacle, are you going to drink these six beers out of? <sighs> Is there a go-to glass or mug or tankard that you find yourself reaching for more often than others? I love the look of the one-litre Steins, but I, I don't <laughs> think I could do one. <laughs> no, I think it would have to be a Belgian, a Belgian, you know, goblet kind of glass that's something that really opens up the nose of the mm. beer because i'm all about that aroma so something that really shows off how beautiful a beer can smell um something that puts a smile on someone's face well marty tell us uh tell the listeners how they get to borrow and <laughs> what they can expect when they come here why they should buy your beer that's eight and a half hour drive from from <laughs> north and north melbourne or Three and a half hours just over the hill. That's what we call the Blue Mountains here, just over the hill from <laughs> Sydney. Um, yeah, we're 10 minutes west of Orange on the Forbes Road. And, uh, yeah, beautiful, peaceful little spot. It's just nice to have, a, you know, a 10-minute drive from home, no traffic lights, and enjoy the countryside and pull up at the shed and open the door and then try and knuckle down and do some work. <laughs> well, it is a beautiful spot. It's well worth, uh, if you're in Orange or the region, seeking out Boronor. Um And we're really looking forward to... I'm really looking forward to coming back, and um, <laughs> I'll be keeping an eye on what new beers are coming out as well. And uh, but it's been a pleasure to speak with you, Marty. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for uh, sharing your chosen brew with us, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Thanks. So that was it. Marty was great fun. He was so hospitable. It was on a Saturday afternoon and the sun was shining down and it's just such a idyllic setting but also just a completely different challenge to brew. Um, largely on his own. There are two other breweries very close by who he collaborates with and shares with and they really see, seem like a band of brothers uh, rather than rivals there but um, real challenge to sort of keep up with demand of bottles and slabs um, and also just to try and get the town of Orange and, and a little bit beyond and just to make a bit of tap space for a microbrewed um, product. So fascinating to see um, what was going on in Orange and really happy that we could make it happen. So thanks to Marty 
for making the time for that episode. In the next episode, I am speaking to Emily Day, who is the creator and editor-in-chief of Froth magazine. Now, I'm sure you've all read a copy of Froth. If you haven't, you need to get down to your local boozer and get a copy. It's a fantastic read. And Emily's passion and knowledge of the beer industry really comes through in the next episode. Don't miss out on it. Find out what beer she's talking about when she described it like this. And it was just like the taste of it was just like being like knocked over by a wave. Thanks for listening. Make sure you rate the podcast on iTunes and tell your friends about it. Share it on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram, whatever avenues you use. That'd be really appreciated. Thanks very much for listening. Take care and I'll see you next time.